We've got Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It's also printed in your bulletins. We've been looking at, for the past month now, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the largest collection of a single set of teachings of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, we're coming across and coming to a very, very important uh, passage for all of us here. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is God's word. The Sermon on the Mount is about the characteristics the quality of the people who are in the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? How do you enter the kingdom of God? Because only a changed heart, that's what Jesus is saying, only a changed heart can truly enter the kingdom of God. Only a transformed life can genuinely be poor in spirit. You can't be poor in spirit on your own power. That's what Jesus is saying. Only a truly changed heart can be meek because of our indwelling sin. Only a changed heart can truly be merciful. So on one hand, Jesus is saying a Christian is utterly distinct, totally different from the way the world works. But Christians, if they were only just distinct from the world, we'd only be talking about behavioral change. We'd only be talking about behavioral modification, moral restraint, don't murder, do not commit adultery, love your enemies, and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, Jesus is saying in this passage that a Christian is not just distinctly apart from a worldly person, but especially distinct from a religious person. Religion. So one of the greatest prerequisites to coming to know Jesus, if you really want to come to know Jesus, if you really want to come to know about the gospel, you have to see Christianity as not just counter to the world, but counter to religion. That means counter to the many ways that many of us here have grown up in the church. If you've never been in the church, the gospel is for you. But if you have grown up in the church, you have to pay very special attention to what Jesus is saying in this text. Because he could be preaching either against you or for you. Very important. One of the keys to understanding the distinctiveness of Christianity one of the best ways to do it is to study the Sermon on the Mount. And so there are three points we're going to go into today. One, Jesus' problem with religion. Two, our problem with obedience. And lastly, then where do you get the real power to obey? Jesus' problem with religion, our problem with obedience. Lastly, the real power then to actually obey God. First, we're going to go into Jesus' problem with religion. Now, I used to grow up, when I looked at the Sermon on the Mount, I used to look at it like this. Jesus is talking about two types of people. 
He's talking about people who obey God's law, and he's talking about people who disobey God's law. So either you're poor in spirit or you're not. Either you're merciful or you're not. Either you're meek or you're not. But look at this passage. Jesus is not addressing people who obey and people who don't obey. That's not really what he's doing here. The Sermon on the Mount is really contrasting two ways of looking at the same type of person. Two ways of looking at obedience. Two types of obedience. Verse 21, on one hand, and now you're not, uh, we don't look at this. This is, this is the passages that are following the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts going into the law. He says, verse 21, on one hand, do not murder. But then verse 22, he says, but I tell you, if you're even angry with somebody, if you hate somebody, you may be subject to judgment. Wow, that's a lot taller. That's a lot higher. We used to think that the Sermon on the Mount contrasted two different types of people, bad people and good people. But in reality, Jesus is talking about two different types of good people. That's what he's looking at here. On one hand, he says in verse 19, anyone who breaks one of even the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, both of them are in heaven. He says both are in heaven. But verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of even the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter. So you may be terrible at practicing the law. You may be great at practicing the law. You're both in heaven. But if your righteousness, only if your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, surpasses that of the teachers of the law. In other words, your goodness, it's not about your goodness being less, your goodness being better. Your goodness has to be even greater than the Pharisees or you won't get in. You know what that means? To be greater than the Pharisees. That, he says, the Pharisees don't get in. That means religious people will not get in. Christianity is so high, the values and the, and the, and the law is so high. It's just such a high view of the law. It surpasses religion altogether. That's, a, that's amazing if you think about it. Uh, the previous passage that we just covered last week, salt and light, Jesus says, that a Christian is salt and light. Religion is not like salt. That means salt, what does it do? We said it gets in, it immerses, it looks at the decay, it looks at what it needs to preserve, and it gets in. Religious people don't get in. Religious people don't immerse. They judge what's there. They judge the decay. Jesus says Christians are like light. Light gets into the darkness, right? So on one hand, you're like salt, You're attracted to things that are falling apart. You're attracted to the decay. On the other hand, you're like light. Light is beautiful. You're attractive to people who are in darkness. The religious are not like light. On one hand, they don't get in. They judge what's decaying. On the other hand, they're not attractive to people who are falling apart. They're not attractive to people who are in the dark. So a Christian has to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's got to be greater than religion. That's Jesus' problem with religion. Now the second point is our problem with obedience. In verses 18 to 20, Jesus is emphatically saying, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase what he's saying here. He basically says this. 
Don't ever think that I don't care about how you live your life. I do care about how you live your life. Verse 19 says, anyone who breaks the least, one of the least of these commandments, will be least, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who calls, anyone who actually obeys, anyone who practices these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, you need to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. So the Sermon on the Mount is not just a recommendation. It's not just guidelines. It's not just teachings. It's not just suggestions or morals. He says, this is law. And the law matters in our lives. Now, if you're living in those days, it's a remarkable thing what Jesus is saying. Why? Because Pharisees, the very nature of being a Pharisee, they were separatists. They set themselves apart. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. They literally set themselves apart for God to live very godly lives. And they live very tightly ordered lives. What they said, what they wore, what they ate, when they ate, how they ate, how they conducted themselves. And they pursued righteousness. They were good people. You wanted a Pharisee as your neighbor. If you had to choose between a tax collector, which was considered much like a drug dealer in our day today, and a Pharisee, which was a law-abiding citizen, the highest law-abiding citizen, who would you want as your neighbor? Who would you want to enter into your neighborhood, going to school with your children? You would want a Pharisee. You would want to aspire to be like them. They were public officials. They were wealthy. They had good, solid, ordered families. The fact is what the Pharisees did was they took the law, the Mosaic law, that's the first five books of the Bible. They took the Ten Commandments, And they systematically derived more than 600 laws from those commandments. Things that you should do, things that you shouldn't do. Positive and negative laws. And still, Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that. It's remarkable what he's saying. If you lived in that time, you would say to yourself, how is that even possible? These people made a lifestyle out of obeying the law. How is that even possible? If you were a tax collector, if you were a prostitute in those days, you would have said, well, that's obvious. It is impossible. I have a big problem with that. I can't live like that. How would I ever be considered to enter the kingdom of heaven? How could God love a person like me? Because I'm terrible. I don't obey. I can't obey. I haven't obeyed. But if you're a Pharisee hearing what Jesus just preached, it's even more disturbing because you obeyed, because your, actual, your goodness, what Jesus is saying is your goodness is what's preventing you from entering. A Pharisee is thinking, wait a second, you have to have a righteousness that surpasses me, my righteousness? How can there be greater order than us? We took this law, broke it down into 600 other laws. How much more can you squeeze out of this? Who could be more righteous than us? Who could be more acceptable to God than us? Neither bad people nor good people. Neither irreligious people nor religious people can have that kind of righteousness. Jesus' view of the law, we think our our view of the law, very high. Jesus' view of the law, even higher. We have a serious problem with that because we can't live up to it. There's no one in the world that has that kind of inner righteousness. And in this, Jesus is saying, really, it doesn't just matter what kind of outer life you live. The law of God doesn't just demand 
a morally acceptable life. And so he begins in verse 21. You start to see it. From verse 21 on, he says, You've heard it said this. He's quoting the law. He's actually looking at the commandments. You've heard it said, do not murder. But then he says, but I tell you this. In other words, it's the same law, but now he's not just looking at the outside. He's telling you to take it inside. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I'm telling you, if you even hate somebody, if you even look at somebody, you turn your nose against them and say, they are not worthy of my friendship. If you even consider somebody unworthy to be your friend because you think they're such foolish people, or if you despise somebody, that is the same thing as murder. That's murder in your heart. You know what gossip is? Gossip is murder. Because what are you doing when you gossip about somebody? When you gossip about somebody, you are murdering their reputation, at least to somebody you're speaking to. You are murdering somebody else's reputation. That murder that's in your heart is now coming outside in the form of gossip. You see? It's a legal form of murder. Jesus is saying, I want you to keep the law. Over and over, you've heard it said. But then he says, I don't want you to just keep it on the outside. I'm challenging your values. Anybody can behave a certain way. You see, if you try to behave a certain way, but there's a dissonance from what's on the inside, what Jesus is saying is, number one, you lack integrity. There's a disintegrity, disintegration, outside, inside, are completely apart. You're falling apart. And that falling apartness will eventually come out, corrode, poison you, poison other people around you. You guys ever read Hamlet? William Shakespeare's famous Hamlet starts out with one person with an internal sin, an internal hatred. And that hatred bubbles out. And one by one, you start to see everybody's lives around Hamlet go away. They start to pass. If you've ever read Hamlet, his two friends, Guildenstern and Rosencrantz, they die. King Claudius dies. Gertrude, his mother, dies. Ophelia's girlfriend, dies. Polonius, her father, dies. Every single one of those characters because of an inward sin that bubbles out into an outward hatred, you see. One by one. Murder. Jesus says, I want you to keep the law, not just on the outside. I want you to apply it to what you value, your core. Friends, the Buddha, Muhammad, they never go this deep. They never have. Because the very nature of Buddhism the very nature of Islam, it's all about religion. Outside change, behavioral modification. Because if you change on the outside, that is proof that will make you feel acceptable on the inside. And so you have the five, fil- five pillars of faith in Islam. You have the eightfold path in, in Buddhism. Jesus says, you need a goodness that's even greater than that. You need a goodness that's even greater than that because those laws, religion, it's not very deep. It's only on the outside. Religious people do things out of fear, you see? You know, if I fail, or then I'm not going to be in. 
or they're going to do things out of pride. I need to do this in order to become in. I need to do this if I'm going to succeed. By the way, this is why we work so hard. This is why we work so hard at home. This is why we work so hard in our social circles. This is why we work so hard to belong at work. It's why we're constantly working for approval. We're constantly doing that. Why we just need to have the perfect children. Why? Because these days to have perfect children makes you in, brings you into certain circles. You can feel acceptable on the inside if your children are behaving and doing well on the outside. It's why we need to have the perfect marriage. Because if you're perfect marriage, on the outside, people look down on that. Or if you're not doing something right, if your marriage isn't going well, you feel terrible on the inside. You feel like a failure. It's why your lifestyles, it's why guilt, a lot of us just driven and ridden with guilt. We're constantly working for approval. So if you fail in any of these areas, there's this deep shame. And when you have a deep, what's shame? Shame is a humility without boldness. Humility without confidence. And if you succeed, that's where the arrogance comes in. That's where the pride comes in. You start to look down on all the people who don't measure up. Because to be able to step on somebody else makes you feel actually better about your own life. And so if you succeed, there's a confidence, but there's no humility. You become arrogant. You become boastful. Both behavioral change that comes out of fear or behavioral change that comes out of pride, all that does ultimately is what? It it shows an inner desperation for approval. That's what's going on. In verse 17, Jesus says, Don't you dare think that I've come to abolish the law. The law is vital. The law is important. But I have not, I've not come to abolish it. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He talks a lot about the law. Why does Jesus bring up the prophets? It's because the law is one thing. To be able to follow the law is one thing, but the prophets, they bring the narrative. They bring the real-life stories, things that you can relate to, and you see how they live their lives, how they apply the law in their lives. And when you see stories about Abraham or Joseph or Moses or David, in these stories you see amazing acts of obedience, amazing acts of faithfulness and, and obedience and courage. And usually when you read these stories, you're inspired, you're moved. But if you think about it, the real response to these stories, it should demotivate you. Because if all these people are just examples to you, you know deep inside, we can't live like Abraham. We're not that good. You can't live like Joseph. You're not that good. We can't be like Moses. We're not that good. We can't be like David. We're not that good. Abraham, as an example, will crush you. Moses or David, as examples, they will ruin your life. Because each of these narratives, they sound basically like this. Here's what they did. Here's how you should do it. Here's what you're called to do. And by the way, you can't do it. You can't do it. We have a huge problem with obedience because it's impossible on our own. We can't obey. Sin is too strong. Indwelling sin, too powerful. So where do you get the power to genuinely obey? Jesus says in verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. In other words, on one hand, he says, because I came... 
I haven't come to abolish the law. You're not off the hook just because I came. You're not off the hook from obeying the law. When I set you free, I didn't set you free from the moral law. You need to obey that law. But Jesus never says, if you obey the law, then I will love you. If you obey the law, then my Father in heaven will accept you. That's not what he says either. Rather, he says, the only way you're going to live without hate, which, is, which leads to murder, the only way that you're going to live with purity, with integrity, with l- real love, is if you know a Father, if you know a God that deeply loves you. And that love melts you. That love just compels you. It breaks you. And you respond to that love. In other words, the law of God, the authority of God. If you just live according to the law because God is an authoritative God like a father, that law is going to hammer you. It's going to break you. Your heart is hard. It's just going to break you. When really what Jesus is saying is you need to be softened by God's love. You need to be softened in a change because you have a hard heart. You can't love. How do you really love somebody? How do you truly love somebody? Valentine's Day just passed, right? Let's say you show up with flowers and candy to your spouse or to your boyfriend, your significant other, or your girlfriend. Your girlfriend says, wow, for me, why did you do this? You didn't have to do this. What do you say in response? Wow, you didn't have to do this. Well, I know. Uh, but it's Valentine's Day and... It's what you do on days like this. It's what you're supposed to do. By the way, get dressed because we're supposed to go out to dinner. That's what we do. I want to spend all my hard-earned money on this dinner, miss the game, uh, to eat food I don't even really want to eat. Is that what you say? If you want a wife, that's not what you say, right? If you want a spouse, that's not what you say. If If you want to keep your girlfriend, that's not what you say, right? When you love somebody, what do you do? You find that thing that delights them. You find that thing that delights their soul and you do it because of your love. You've received love and you respond to that love with your love. Right? That's what you do. So how do you love God? What pleases God at the heart? Jesus says, the law. The law pleases God. If you look at the Ten Commandments, every one of those commandments is a representation of God's character. It's like God's character thrown up on a mirror, like on display. That's what it is. And when God created us in his image, what he's saying is you were created to reflect that character of God. That's your design. You were designed to be that way. Every design, of every work of art is a, char- is a representation of the character of the artist. Right? So when you look at a Picasso, you can tell. If you're, if you're into art, you know that if you see a Picasso, you know, oh, this is Picasso's early years. Oh, this is him mid-career. This is him towards the end as he was shifting. You can look at a Monet and you can say, or a Renoir, you can say, yeah, uh, you know, the Philadelphia Art Museum, tons of Monets. Right? If you go to Le Barnes, one of the largest collections of Monets, you go there and you can say, yeah, this is Monet at his earlier years. This is how he was evolving, what he was thinking about. You see his character. Right? And so when you look at the law, you're looking at the design that you were created. If you want to be the most efficient, the most proficient, the most optimal person that you, God says, this is what you were designed to be. 
Essentially, that's what's happening. So you were designed to be faithful. You were designed to be honest. You were designed to be forgiving. You were designed to be loving. And Jesus himself loves, Jesus is the exact radiance of God. That's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, right off the bat. The exact radiance of God. Last week we said that Jesus standing before the candelabras in the temple. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the desert, through the wilderness. He is the exact radiance of the Shekinah glory of God. And he says, I love God way too much to say, disregard the law. He can't do that. Forget about the law. That's ah, the old stuff. Psalm chapter 1, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But what? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. On this law, he meditates day and night. So if you are designed to forgive, but you can't, you're designed to love, but you can't or you don't, that means that there's a design flaw. That's sin. There's a flaw in the design. You take a mirror. What does a mirror do? A mirror reflects the image of the person standing in front of the mirror, right? You were designed to be a reflection of the character of God. Now, if you take that mirror, you take a bat, you smash that mirror, you still see an image, but that image is flawed. That image is broken. That image is is distorted. That's us in sin, broken and flawed, still reflecting some parts of the actual true image, the true character, The law is that perfect image. The law, the psalmist says, your law is perfect. The law is the perfect image of God. The law is a picture of the perfect design. But if you violate the law, it's like smashing the mirror. That's what it's like doing. And that breakdown has eternal consequences, eternal proportions. So if you continue to hate, that hate and that resentment, it continues to corrode you. And initially, you think it's just projected at one person, but it starts to take form. It starts to get deeper rooted. That resentment starts to corrode your soul, and then it starts to corrode the people around you. And if enough people become corroded, you see a breakdown in society. That's why we have racism. That's why we have class distrust. All those breakdowns. And by the way, it's very nuanced. It's a lot more nuanced than I'm making it out to be. You see a breakdown in society. How do you know then? How do you know the love of God? Because if we're to respond to the love of God, we have to experience the love of God in such a deep and personal way that it would change us and transform us so that we can love. How do you know that God is your Father? Because assurance, Jesus says, having that assurance, knowing that God is your father, that is the heart of of a Christian. A true Christian just knows that God is his father. Uncertainty, never knowing where you stand, doing good works to receive love from God, that type of uncertainty is the heart of religion. Whether you believe in God or whether you don't, why do you think you work so hard? Why do you think you need that promotion? Because you want that approval. Where does that approval come from? If we're just molecules that are just bouncing against each other, collided and just randomly became somebody, why this need to be so deeply approved? And why is that such a universal quality? There's no chemical that can explain that. There's no chemical reaction that can explain that. There is no biological reaction that can explain that in a universal way. 
Trust me, I'm a chem major and a bio major. There isn't. When you say, man, but these rules, they're tough, what you're really saying is, I myself, believe, I look at the law, it is perfect. And I'm not. I'm broken. These rules are tough. What you're really saying is, I have a high view of the law. It's beyond my reach. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. It is. And yet, I have an even higher view of the law than that. Because these people who are so good at following it, these people who are so good at obeying the teachers of the law, the ones who train us to obey, your obedience and righteousness has to be even greater than that. That's what he says. That is incredible. So if you believe, here's a law, just obey it, then you're going to find assurance in your life. Are you really going to find that assurance in your life? You're not. Maybe sometimes, maybe temporarily, but then you're going to pay the penalty for that. You're going to pay the price for that. You're going to work hard. And when you fail, it's just going to fill you with uh, self-loathing. Or there's always going to be this anxiety because it's until the next win, the next time you obey. And when Jesus, so I'll give you an example. When Jesus says, do not worry. All right, we're going to learn about that later weeks. Do not worry, he says. Part of the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, I want you to forgive when you're angry inside. I want you to pray. I want you to submit. I want you to surrender when you have pride inside. And when you fail, what's going to happen then? You're going to lose assurance. You're going to feel uncertain. And Jesus says then, I want you to obey, but I've come to fulfill the law. I obeyed. Very important. You have to pay very attention. If you grew up in the church, I don't care how many times, you, I get it, gospel, I love the gospel, I get it, I, I'm in the gospel, I trust the gospel, you need to listen to this. That is for you, okay, what I'm about to say. When you think about the law, okay, think about just the basic civil law, crossing a red light. You have two choices. When you come to a red light, you have two choices. You can obey the law and stop, or what? You can cross that red light and pay the penalty. Those are your two ways of fulfilling the law. You either stop or you pay the penalty, right? If you obey or pay, no condemnation. Why is the gospel good news? Why is the gospel good news? Because Jesus, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not just good recommendations, The gospel is not just good morals. The very word gospel means good news. Something has happened already. News is reporting something that has happened. Something has happened already, and it's good. Jesus came to fulfill the law. How did he do it? On one hand, Jesus Christ obeyed. Jesus Christ obeyed even more than those examples. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David. They were great at times, but you know what? They were also incredibly flawed. Every one of them incredibly flawed. Sometimes they were terrible examples. You can look at David and look at how great David was, and on the same hand, on the same breath, same conversation, you could talk about his sinfulness. And he has committed his life just incredibly, just blows up at one point in his life. You see that. Terrible examples as well. But Jesus Christ never sinned. He always obeyed. Completely obeyed. And so he's the greater Abraham. He's the greater Joseph. He's the greater Moses, and he's the greater David. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. It redeems all their sins, redeems all our sins. But 
so great because he always obeyed, it redeems all of our obedience too. And then on top of that, he fulfills the law. So he obeyed. And yet on top of that, he also pays the penalty too. He fulfills the law in every way. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. So not only will I obey, but on top of that, I will pay. That's what he says. And so he pays the penalty too. Very important for us to see this. Because if Jesus only paid the penalty for our sins, then he saves you, but you will have no power to obey yourself. You have no power to obey. It's still up to you to obey perfectly. It's still up to you to fulfill the law, that part of the law. And it's why many of us growing up in the church and now, that's the way we view the church, that's the way we view the law, that's the way we view our relationship with God, that's why we feel like crap when things go wrong or when we mess up. It's why we're working and striving and slaving. It's why there's no joy, there's no peace, you're filled with anxiety, filled with depression at times when you fail. We reject the church, we walk away. Five years later, five years have gone by, life has taken its toll, the corrosion of sin has spread out from the inside to the out. Now what? What solution have you found? Because there is no other solution. The solution is not something different. The solution is your view of the law, your view of your relationship with the Father was distorted to begin with. And now you're back here and God has brought you back here. That's what this is about. Because if Jesus fulfilled the law, not just in his obedience, but by paying the penalty, but also through his obedience, that obedience, there's power there. Because on the cross, when Jesus died, not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, all of his righteousness, that's why he had to obey that obedience. Jesus says, you are in me and I am in you. What that means is my righteousness, my faithfulness, my obedience now transfers to you every bit as much as your sin is transferred to me. That's called union, imputation, that transfer. That means that my obedience, I earned it for you. What I deserve from the Father because of my obedience, I worked and I labored and I strove for you so that it would transfer to you. So on the cross of Christ, everything that we deserved, Jesus received. And as a result, everything Jesus deserved, we can receive. That means now you have power. Jesus is in you. That means that you can be faithful. You can be obedient. You can be loving. You can be forgiving. When you believe in the gospel, when you believe in Jesus Christ, his obedience, his perfect obedience, and the perfect work that he had done on the cross, there's no more penalty because it's been paid. I've come to fulfill the law. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. The work is done. The debt is paid. It's actually a financial term that means that transaction is complete. I've come to fulfill the law, and he did it perfectly. That's the gospel. And so the blessing that Jesus deserved because he fulfilled the law transfers to us union. The power that Jesus had to obey transfers to us union. You see, it becomes yours because the Spirit of God now enters in and gives you power. A lot of times, the reason why you feel like crap, you know, before you became a Christian, you don't feel like crap when you do certain things. You didn't even know these things were wrong. 
And as you grow, there's a lot more insight that you gain because a lot of the things that you didn't even think about, things that may not be crimes, they may not even be considered bad, start to bubble up and you start to think about it. You know why? Because the Spirit of God is active in your life, in your heart. That's what's happening. And it makes you feel like crap. Right? That's what happens. So it's not something to run away from. That's the Spirit of God in you. That's what He does. He convicts you of sin. Powers you. Not only does He convict you, He gives you the power to actually live obediently. No one has ever lived like Jesus. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ obeyed. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So He's supposed to inherit the earth, but on the cross, what happened? On the cross, Jesus Christ gave up his inheritance. On the cross, Jesus Christ became sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ is hungering. And Jesus Christ is emptied of his righteousness. And he's so emptied, he says, I thirst. I'm thirsty. He's not just talking about physical thirst. They offered him a drink. That's not what he was talking about. He's saying, I'm thirsting, hungering and thirsting for righteousness because he became sin. And so God the Father is forsaken, turned his face away from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he says. I thirst. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself. He was hungry. On the cross, Jesus Christ, incredibly merciful, incredibly merciful. And Jesus teaches, blessed are the merciful for what? They will be shown mercy. And was Jesus shown mercy? No. On the cross, Jesus Christ was cursed. Jesus Christ was rejected. Jesus Christ was pure in heart. In the Beatitudes, he says, if you're pure in heart, blessed are the pure in heart for what? They will see God. But on the cross, he didn't see God. He was forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been cast out by God. I am not in. That approval that we desperately seek. By the way, the word righteousness really means approval. So he's hungering for righteousness because the righteousness of God left him. The approval has left him. He's been cast out. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed, but he died on the cross for his people. Why? Why did he die? Jesus Christ lost the inheritance so you could inherit the earth. That assurance transfers, is imputed to you. Jesus Christ hungered and thirsted. He was emptied so that you could be filled with his righteousness. That righteousness passes into you. That's power. That righteousness is imputed to you. Union. You can pursue righteousness. You will now hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can. Jesus Christ was disowned by God, forsaken by God, so that we could be sons of God in him. That sonship transfers to you. It's de- you are declared righteous. You are declared his sons. Positionally, you are a child of God. Functionally, you now have the power to live as a child. Union. Every time you look at the cross, every time you look at the cross of Christ, you see there's the assurance that the Father loves you. 
What father? If a father loves you, the difference between a father and a boss is what? Because you get certain things from both. But a boss will say work. The father says rest. The boss, if you mess up enough times, he will stop covering you. The father, if you mess up enough times, he will discipline you, but he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. A boss, a boss, if you mess up enough times, you won't have a boss anymore. A father, you mess up enough times, you will always have a father. He'll always be your father. He'll always love you. A boss, there's limits to how far he'll go to protect you. A father, he will sacrifice his life for you. And what do you think was happening on the cross as he watched his own son die that he sent? He was dying because the Trinity was being ripped apart for you. There's nothing a father wants. Every time you look at the cross, there's the father's love. There's the assurance that you need. That's the only approval that you need. That's what you've been looking for. That's what you've been working for all your life. And you have it in Christ. There's this old song that I used to hear as a child. Back then, Christian music was very, very scant when I was a child growing up. Not, not, not the good stuff that we hear today. Not the good stuff that we sing today. Pickens were very, very slim as a child. But I remember this one song, um, and it's an old, old song, but basically uh, it goes like this. Are you tired of chasing pretty rainbows? I know it sounds like cheesy, right? Are you tired of, come on, it's like the early 80s. Are you tired of chasing pretty rainbows? Are you tired of spinning around and around? Are you tired of working? Are you tired of striving? Are you tired of laboring? Wrap up all the shattered dreams of your life and at the feet of Jesus, lay them down. Give them all, give them all, give them all to Jesus. Shattered dreams, wounded hearts, broken toys. Give them all, give them all, give them all to Jesus. And he will turn your sorrow into joy. Martin Luther, and you you have a quote of Martin Luther in in your bulletins. It's a prayer that he used to pray against the law. Because the law, remember, he was, a, he was a, in Catholicism, he was a, a monk and a priest. So for him, looking at this, looking at the law, he venerated, he, he worshipped the law. And once he came to the gospel, he realized that his view of the law was distorted. His view of his relationship with the Father was distorted. And so he would pray a prayer against the law. We need to pray prayers like that because we are so driven back to just being obedient to get the acceptance of God when really we are accepted by God and that's why we should be obedient. And so Martin Luther used to, he used to say this. He said, the law guides us to show how to love God, but the law must not climb up to the throne of our conscience. In other words, the law shouldn't determine your value. Your obedience should not determine your value or worth in the Father. It should never sit on the throne of, of, of your heart. Only Jesus belongs there. That's why he is king. Only Jesus belongs there. Otherwise, your life is going to be led into guilt or despair when you fail or rise to feed your ego and pride when you succeed, your arrogance. But because Jesus fulfilled the law, our lives are set free to obey. Some of us don't want that because we want something we can contribute. And that's why it's so hard for us to admit failure. That's how I know. When I'm talking to somebody and they just have a hard time admitting their sin 
or a hard time admitting where they've gone wrong, or a hard time, they, they, wanted, they have a way of kind of manipulating, their, they've convinced themselves that they can kind of come out looking not that bad. You're still trying to come, come out clean. When really the only way, the prerequisite to coming and experiencing the grace of God is what? To show all the more how dirty you are in front of Him. When you can do that, the waters of grace will cleanse. Will it not? Will it not cleanse? You will live a life of gratitude. When you look at the law and see how impossible it is, when you look at Christ and see how beautiful He is, what he has done for you. You will love the Father for sending Jesus and sacrificing his life for you. You will respond with love. You've got to preach that to yourself over and over, even above your goodness, because sometimes our goodness is the greatest impediment to our worship of God. We worship him less because we think we're good enough. That's the problem. The problem is not that you're so bad. The problem is you still think you're good enough. You still think you have enough goodness in you. You still think that the little that you can do could be enough. Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. His righteousness surpasses that. That's going to give you a humility because you realize once you see your sinfulness, you're going to say, I did not deserve any of this. And it's going to give you a confidence because you're going to realize, I'm not going to lose any of this ever because it's not based on my works. It's not based on my goodness. It's not based on my record or my merit. It's based on Jesus' works and his goodness and his merit and his record. You see that? That's what makes it so beautiful. It's going to power your obedience. When you look at the law, I'm going to close here. When you look at the law, it's easy to look at the law and say, it judges me. You feel judged sometimes when you're in the church. Let God's judgment be a gracious judgment to you. Sometimes you feel arrested. Let it be an arresting of peace. Sometimes you feel captured. Let it be a captivity because of grace, by grace. Sometimes you feel handcuffed, right? Restrained. Let it be a restraint of freedom. A freedom to now live the way you were designed to live. You've been set free. One thing you can't let it do is lead you into guilt and unrest. Surrender to the love of Christ, to the grace of Christ, to the love of the Father, to the fellowship that you share in the Spirit that will power you and change you towards glory. Because one day... Friends, one day, there will be no more sin. You can't sin one day. You will be exactly as God designed you. Your bodies will be designed, will be, will be functioning exactly the way you were designed to function. Your thoughts, your heart, let the Spirit renew that now. Okay? Let it do it. Let's pray together.